Ezekiel 28. And uh, if you would, once you've gotten there, uh, please stand with me. Uh, we're going to uh, just read a couple verses here in Ezekiel uh, 28 and then allow you to uh, be seated. We're going to start reading in verse number 12. The Bible says this, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of visions and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Thank you. You may be seated. My message tonight is a little bit different than I, I would typically preach. I tend to like to go to one passage and just kind of stay there and kind of pull it apart and look at it and dissect it. And uh, Tonight's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more topical, uh, but I think that's uh, kind of the nature of, of the message and the topic that we're looking at. But uh, we find here a passage in Ezekiel uh, where really twice in Scripture we're given a glimpse into the past of one of the most uh, powerful beings that God created, and that's Satan. And here in this passage we uh, find, according to Ezekiel, that Satan, he was an angel that God created. And the Bible tells us that not only was he an angel that God created, but he was more beautiful than any of the creation uh, creatures that he had created. It says that his beauty was unequaled among the angels. It says that he was full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. The Bible talks about every precious stone was his covering. It calls him here the anointed cherub. And then he says at the end, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. His beauty it was unequaled among the angels, but so was his foolishness. If you will turn over to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah, he really expounds on the iniquity that Ezekiel says was found uh, in Satan. In verse uh, number 12, it says this, it says, how art, thou, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend into heaven, I will ascend rather above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. There we see Satan's foolishness in that he wasn't content to just be near God. He wasn't, uh, he wanted to be above God. Lucifer, he wasn't satisfied to just give worship. He wanted to occupy the throne and receive the worship of God. And we see really the pride in Satan's cadence of I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five times he declares that he will. He sought to be like God. And because of that, the Bible says that he was cast down from heaven. And really he spent all of history trying to convince us to do the same. Trying to convince us to be like God. Isn't that the temptation uh, that he tried to convince Eve of in the garden? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, 
and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He sought to try to convince Eve that she could be like God. That if she would disobey and take of the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat of, uh, that she would somehow be enlightened and would be uh, like God. And you know, Satan hasn't changed. He's just as self-centered now as he's always been. He's just as foolish now as he was then. And it's important for us to remember that Satan is a created being. He's a created being. He was one of God's angels and he was created to serve and to worship God. As even, you think about even before he fell, even when his heart was good, Satan was still inferior to God. Like all of the angels, uh, he's limited in his power. He's limited in his knowledge. You know, God, he knows everything, but the angels, they only know what he reveals. God, he's everywhere, but the angels, they can only be in one place at a time. You know, I think about people there, you know, I hear people saying, well, how, how Satan bothered them and how Satan's after them. And, you know, you got shirts that say, not today, Satan, uh, you know, and, and they, they're talking about how Satan's fighting this morning. And they use that as the reason uh, why they were why they were late or whatever. But, you know, Satan's not omnipresent. He's not. And with eight billion people in this world, I kind of doubt that he's following you around every day. I think we tend to give Satan a whole lot more credit than he deserves. You know, maybe the reason you were late is because you stayed up too late the night before watching who knows what on Netflix. You hit the snooze button three times and you didn't put gas in your car last night because you were too tired. So you had to do it that day. You know, we give Satan all kinds of reasons why, uh, well, you know, it's all kinds of credit for things that he's not responsible for. And most of the time, it's our own foolishness that gets us into trouble. But God, God is everywhere. Angels can only be in one time. But also, God is all powerful. Angels are only as powerful as God allows them to be. And so we see that Satan has always, always has and always will be a limited being. You say, well, isn't this obvious? I don't think it's as obvious to everybody. You know, if you were to ask most people what the opposite of God is, I think most people would say Satan. In fact, there's, a, there's people that they do that. That's, how, that's one of their uh, evangelism tools. They go and they ask, what's the opposite of God? But, you know, that's how the world portrays him to be. You've probably seen cor uh, cartoons where... The character, he's in a, a moral dilemma and he's faced with a choice. And what happens? You have a little angel that pops up on one side and a little devil that pops up on the other side and trying to persuade them to their uh, position. But, you know, the devil would love to convince you that he and God are on equal footing. But it's not correct. Satan is an angel, albeit a fallen one. God created angels just as he created you and I. And the creator has power over his creation. And so the correct answer to what's the opposite of God, it's nothing. Nothing is equal to God. God has no equals. Exodus 15, 11, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And so it's important that we understand uh, when it comes to Satan, which is, if you haven't figured out what we're looking at tonight, uh, is that he's not some independent force. He's not operating outside of God's jurisdiction. He's not some free agent just doing as he pleased with unlimited reign. He's not uh, operating outside of the scope of God's oversight. Uh, he's a limited being. And God is over him. And Satan, he would love to deceive you into thinking, thinking of him as 
uh, being independent and unlimited in his power, but he has no power except for that which God permits. 1 John 4 and verse 4, uh, he tells us that you're of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so all angels, including Satan, are inferior to God. And the truth is that Satan, even as a fallen angel, is still a servant of God. As a created being of the almighty, sovereign God, his powers are exercised only under God's direction and pleasure. He can only do what God allows him to do. He has no choice but to serve, to accomplish God's will in the world. Now, he doesn't want to. He doesn't intend to be used that way. He would love nothing more than to be able to build his own kingdom, but he can't. And every time Satan tries to advance his own cause, he only ends up advancing God's cause. Does Satan have some powers? Yeah. But knowing that they can only be exercised under God's direction ought to give us great hope. And that Satan's not free to just wreak havoc, wreak havoc upon God's people at will. Satan is God's tool. And so Satan would love that you never learn about that and how God uses him as an instrument to advance the cause of Christ. But tonight I want to look at this, this thought, God's tool, Satan. And I want to look at three ways we find in Scripture how God uses Satan as his tool. And so I want you to notice, uh, first of all, if you want to take notes here, I wrote down that God uses Satan as his tool to sanctify his servants. To sanctify his servants. If you would, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be doing uh, quite a bit of turning here. But I want you to see these uh, passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there in your New Testament I'm going to start reading in verse number 22. It says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labor is more abundant. In stripes above measures. In prisons more frequent. In deaths oft of the Jews five times received I forty stripes. Save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is offended, and I burn not? If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concerning, mine, which concerning mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Arterius, uh, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with garrison, uh, garrison desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands." Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, 
but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I should not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he, hear, that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure, and this is, this is what I want to look at here, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so here we see in the life of the Apostle Paul uh, how God uses Satan as his tool to sanctify his servants. You know, Satan's biggest downfall was his pride. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to exalt himself. And, you know, we all have those same tendencies, even the meekest among us, we tend to think of ourselves sometimes a little higher than we ought to think. And the Apostle Paul, we just read here a brief uh, resume, if you will, of his life. And he talks about all of the things that uh, he had done. You know, what about his pedigree? Well, he says, I was pure Hebrew. What about his ministry? He said, man, I'm more laborious than them all. What about persecution, Paul? Stripes above measure. Prisons more frequently. Deaths, deaths oft. You got problems, Paul? Oh, yeah, I got all kinds of perils. I was beaten. I was stoned. I was shipwrecked. I was cold. I was hungry. I was thirsty. Hey, on top of that, he had the care of all the churches. Oh, by the way, uh, Paul had a personal encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. He healed the sick. He traveled the world. The Lord used him to write large portions of the New Testament. And I think perhaps the Apostle Paul knew that the Lord was using him pretty significantly. God used the Apostle Paul uh, in a great way and maybe... His pharisaical past wasn't as repressed as maybe he wished it had been. Maybe every once in a while there was a tendency for pride even in the Apostle Paul's life to creep back up every once in a while. Maybe the Apostle Paul, I don't know, maybe he was human like you and I. And he dealt with pride just like you and I uh, deal with pride. And the Bible tells us that the God who loves the Apostle Paul, but the God who hates pride, saw fit to protect Paul from pride by using Satan to do so. It says this in verse 7, that he used uh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. And the Bible tells us here uh, about this thorn that God used. Now, it doesn't tell us the nature of the thorn. You know, there's been a lot of uh, speculation by different Bible scholars as to what Paul's thorn in the flesh may have been. Uh, and we don't know exactly what that is. But we do know, according to this, what its purpose was. And it tells us here, it was to keep him humble. Look at what it says, unless I should be exalted above measure. Through the abundance of revelations. Look at the end of the verse. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And so we know its purpose. And not only do we know its purpose, but we know its origin. It says here that it was uh, the messenger of Satan. And the messenger of Satan, uh, it could have been the pain, a pain that he experienced. It could have been a problem that he experienced. It could have been a person who was a pain that he was experiencing. We've all had those. Uh, we don't entirely know, but what we do know is that the messenger, he was under God's control. How do we know that? Look at what he says next. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so the Apostle Paul, it says he sought to have the Lord remove this thorn, but rather than remove Paul's thorn. You know what the Lord did? He reassures him. He says, hey, this is, this is part of my plan. This is allowed of me. And he tells him, I'm using it as a means for you to experience my grace and my strength in a supernatural way. 
See, Satan and his forces were simply a tool in the hand of God to strengthen God's servant Paul. Rather than weaken the Apostle Paul, the thorn allowed Paul to experience God in an even greater way. And though, though Satan, I'm sure, sought to use the thorn as a tool to try to discourage and to detract Paul, God repurposed that tool and used it to teach Paul humility and dependence upon him. And so we see God there using, using Satan as his tool in the life of the Apostle Paul. But let's look at an Old Testament example. Flip back to the book of Job. Turn to Job chapter 1. In verse number 8 it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, and perf a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Verse 9, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hath, uh, hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thine power. Only, uh, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Here we find Satan challenging the credibility of Job's faith. Satan is asserting that the only reason that Job is faithful is because God's blessed him. God's protected him. He says, man, you put a hedge around him. He's increased uh, in all these different ways. If you just take that stuff away, I'm telling you, Job's going to curse you to your face. And what is God's response in verse 12? It says, all that, he hath ha all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. And what is God doing there? We see that God gives Satan permission but he also sets up parameters. He doesn't just let him run wild. He gives him parameters. He says, okay, I'll let you do this, but here are the parameters. And you know the story of Job. Uh, he passes the test and Satan, he comes back complaining. He says, well, well I'm telling you if, you, had, if you had let me just let him experience just a little bit of pain and he'll curse you. Look in verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 6. It says, And the Lord said unto Satan, uh, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. And so again, he asks for permission to tempt Job. And what does God do? God gives him permission, but he also sets forth parameters. And so, though the pain that Job experienced and the questions he must have had were abundant, what happens? In the end, we see Job's faith and his health are greater than they ever were. God allowed him to, be experience, uh, to experience trials and temptations, but he, but, over, but he was in control over all of it. And just like with Job and just like with Paul, we may not understand all the reasons why God allowed Job to face this kind of a test, but we know the source of Job's test. In chapter 42, verse 11, it tells us that these tests, uh, they, were, that the, they were tests that the Lord had brought upon him. These were tests that God uh, allowed Job to experience. And so once again, we see God using Satan to bring Job to a greater place of spiritual maturity. See, Satan thought that he was bringing about Job's demise. He thought he was wrecking Job's life, that he was going to destroy this man of faith. He thought that he'd be successful in getting Job to curse God. But in reality, he only caused Job's faith to deepen and his confidence in God to increase. You see, Satan has no power except that which God gives him. Even Satan's attacks are limited to God's permission 
and God's parameters. And so rest assured that even when Satan appears to win, really he's losing. You look at Job's life throughout most of the book and all that's happening is like, Job, uh, we're starting to think you're maybe not as upright as you're saying you are. Uh, you know, his friends are questioning him. Uh, his friends certainly had their doubt. But in reality, uh, God was doing a work in his life. And I think part of Satan's punishment is the frustration he's got to feel when he's unwillingly serving God uh, to, do his, to do God's work. And so we see not only does God use Satan as a tool to sanctify his servants, but I put here number two, that God uses Satan as a tool to stimulate those who are sleeping. So don't sleep. Amen. Amen. All right, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Told you we're going to be turning a lot. You didn't know you were doing sword drills in church. Verse 5, it says, And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, uh, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hands as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hands. Here we see God using uh, Satan to uh, stir those that are sleeping in the life of King Saul. Here we read about a king who had his own battle with pride. Uh, Saul, he was the first king of Israel. But just a few chapters earlier, you maybe know the story is that he disobeyed the command of God. And as a result, what happened? Uh, God promised that Saul's kingdom would not continue and that he was going to be replaced. And God chooses David, a shepherd boy uh, who doesn't look like much, but a man after God's own heart to replace Saul as the next king of Israel. And Saul, uh, he's not too excited about this. Saul is upstaged by David in just about every way. David did everything better than Saul. He sang better than Saul. He impressed the women more than Saul. He even killed the giants that Saul was afraid of. But rather than celebrating David's God-given abilities, we see here Saul, he becomes consumed with jealousy toward David. He grows more hostile toward David. And so God here in this passage, in an effort to try to awaken Saul from this fog of jealousy, he enlists the help of his unwilling servant, Satan. He sends an evil spirit on Saul. It says in verse 10 that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul. Saul had directly disobeyed God on multiple occasions. And so as a result, God removed his spirit from Saul and was allowing this spirit to torment him. And the, the point is this, is that there are times when our hearts grow so cold and our ears are so dull that God turns us over to endure the consequences of our choices. And that's the case with Saul here. This demon was released to torment Saul uh, uh, because of his treatment toward David. And if Saul wasn't going to respond properly to God's love and to God's kindness, 
Maybe God was going to have to wake him up another way. And so he sent this evil spirit. Maybe Saul would respond to Satan's tormenting. Now we have a New Testament example. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In the New Testament, we find a similar incident in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5. It says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed, uh, might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him, that he hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here we find uh, those who were not responding to the teachings of Scripture and the Holy Ghost. They were turned over to Satan. Here we read about a man in the church that the Bible says was committing incest. He was committing adultery. And Paul rebukes the church for tolerating this. He says, man, you know this is happening. You've not done anything about it. And, and he really, uh, he rebukes them for not dealing with the immorality. And he gives them some pretty strong instructions in verse number five. He says that they're to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, what is he saying? If the word of God isn't going to make a difference, if they're not listening to the church on this matter, then perhaps they'll come to their senses and repent when they experience some of Satan's tormenting. Look over in 1 Timothy. Just flip over a few pages there. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18 uh, through 20. It says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And he says this, which some, having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul writes to Timothy concerning some of the men that he had discipled. And two of these disciples, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they had made shipwreck of their faith. They had negatively influenced others as well. And so Paul gives similar instruction to Timothy. He says that uh, he has delivered these unto Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Paul, effectively, he's turning these two over to Satan in hopes that they would come to their senses concerning the foolishness of their ways, concerning blasphemy. And though it might seem, you know, you read these passages and it might seem like, man, that's pretty extreme. Like, man, we, we sure we got to do that? Is that, that really something we got to go all the way uh, through with? But though it may seem extreme to you and I, God allows those who are unrepentant to experience Satan's wrath and hope of, hopes of awakening them. God, as a holy and a loving father, makes the tough choice to allow his children to experience the consequences of their rebellion. And he allows those to be driven to despair that they might be driven back to him. You know, for some believers, they're awakened by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're awakened by the conviction of the word of God. Others have hardened their hearts. Others require greater levels of chastening. But you'll notice that in both of these examples, the goal is not destruction. The goal is restoration. The point is to restore them. 
God doesn't just give up on those that are his. He doesn't just throw them out uh, to the wolves to be destroyed. The goal is always repentance and restoration. And though Satan, maybe in the moment, believes he's achieving his goal and destroying the lives of these believers, he's unwittingly being used as God's tool to awaken that believer to respond properly, properly to God's love and to God's grace. And every time one of God's wayward children return, God's grace and God's forgiveness is magnified for others to see. And so God uses Satan as his tool to stir those that are sleeping uh, to, to, to uh, sanctify his saints. But here's the last one. God uses Satan as a tool sometimes to strengthen the saints. To strengthen the saints. One more passage I want you to turn to. Turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 and verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Perhaps the clearest illustration of how God uses Satan as his tool can be found here in the life of Peter. You know, Jesus, he warns Peter that he's about to come under attack. He says, man, Satan, he, he's got, you're his number one target. He's got his eyes on you. He wants to sift you as we. He's about to come under attack. But there in that very same sentence, Jesus not only warns Peter, but he assures Peter that he's going to provide the means necessary to be victorious through this trial. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. He doesn't say, if you are converted, strengthen the brethren. He says, when you are converted, Strengthen the brethren. And you know, just in that phrase, we see who's really in control. Satan wasn't in control. God was in control. Satan thought he's going to be successful by uh, you know, getting Peter to forsake his faith in Christ. But you know, Jesus wasn't caught off guard when Peter denied him. Jesus wasn't caught off guard when Peter wasn't there at the crucifixion. Jesus wasn't uh, caught off guard when Peter determined that he's going to go back to his career in fishing. This was all part of the plan. Jesus knew that this was coming. Now, I, I, sure, I think best case scenario was Peter would have never wavered in his faith. But God in his wisdom and foreknowledge knew that this was coming. And Jesus ultimately knew that Peter's faith would be greater as a result of this trial that he was about to experience and so he tells him, he says, hey, once you've made it through this trial, strengthen your brethren. Use it to encourage them. Use it to, 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 to strengthen them and to encourage their faith. Jesus knew that his faith would be even greater after coming through this trial than it would have been if he had never experienced the testing. You know, it's possible that if Peter's faith hadn't been tested like it was, he maybe would have never risen to the position and the influence that he had there in the first century church. I think the reason that Peter's faith was so strong and the reason that we find him so bold on the day of Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts is because his faith had been tested. His faith had been tried. Someone said that a faith that cannot be, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And Jesus knew that. That's why he allowed Satan to test Peter. He knew that in the end, not only would Peter be strengthened, but so would the brethren. See, the purpose of the test was to provide a testimony of God's power for the church. Jesus was allowing Peter to experience a trial so that, he could so that he could encourage his fellow believers. And isn't that what he did? 
I mean, we're studying the, the book of 1 Peter. How does he start it? His first epistle, verse 7, chapter 1. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He's saying, hey, I'm speaking from experience. When you go through a trial, your faith will be refined and it's going to come out even better. Perhaps the, reason that you're, perhaps the reason for the trials and the tests that we're experiencing in our life uh, is that the church, we need living testimonies of the resurrection power of Christ. We need to see people experiencing victory and being victorious over their temptations and over their trials. Your difficulty, your conflict, uh, your disease, they're all preparing you to be a voice that God can use to strengthen and encourage fellow believers, others in the church. That's God's plan. That's how God designed it. Don't become discouraged by testings. Don't be duped into believing that failure and defeat are inevitable. Remember God's promise. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But hey, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What's he saying is that there's no trial that's outside of the control of God. God has made a way for victory through each one. And though Satan means for it to harm us, God uses it as a tool to not only strengthen us, but to strengthen others as well. He's made provision for victory. He'll use it to strengthen your faith and the faith of others. And so do we have an adversary? Sure we do. His name is Satan. Does he desire to devour you? Does he desire to destroy you? Sure, those are his intentions, but never forget, he's a limited being. Satan would love for you to think he can just do whatever he wants, operate however he wants, uh, that he has unlimited power, but he has absolutely no power except that which God permits. He's still a servant to God. And his powers are only exercised under God's direction and pleasure. And so it's important for us to remember that when we're experiencing spiritual warfare, Satan is a defeated foe. God is using him as his tool for his purposes. And perhaps the reason that you're experiencing a trial tonight, maybe God is allowing that to happen in order to refine you. Perhaps God is trying to remove something that's hindering your effectiveness for him. Maybe he's using your tests to bring you into a place of greater dependence and greater reliance upon him. Sometimes God uses Satan as a tool to try to get your attention. Perhaps your heart has become hardened. Maybe you've become calloused to God's word. Maybe you've resisted the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Hey, if that's the case, you ought to make a beeline back to God. You ought to get right with him. You ought to repent and turn back to him. But then also remember that God often uses the trials and the testings of Satan as a tool not only to strengthen our faith, but to strengthen the faith of others. Think about in your own life how you've been inspired and challenged by the faith of others. I can promise you that those people who challenged your faith were people who experienced great testings, people who experienced great trials and, and, and had their faith strengthened as a result. I think about one of the hymns that I know a lot of people love, and it's the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It was written by Horatio uh, Spafford, and he was a wealthy businessman in Chicago, and he lost much of his real estate in the Chicago fire. And after that fire, he sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship to go to Europe where uh, they were going to help Moody and Sankey with one of their meetings, but just get away for a time of rest. And 
Uh, he received a transmission from his wife uh, with a, a painful message after the ship experienced a disaster there, and it simply said, saved alone. Spafford quickly made arrangements to join his wife, and when they reached the spot where his daughters had drowned, Spafford marked the sad event with the words of hope when he wrote this, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Many have been encouraged by the words of that song. You think about all the people whose faith uh, has been strengthened as they found hope and strength in just those simple words in that hymn that were birthed out of a great trying of Spafford's faith. You know, God can use your life as a living testimony for him. God can use your trial. He can use your test as a, as a testimony of the resurrection power of God for others to see. And so don't resent, resent the testing. Instead, see it as evidence of God's love for you, God's care for you and seeking to strengthen you. So your faith, it may inspire others in their uh, going through similar tests and similar trials to look to God. And so remember, when the trials come, when the testings come, don't be, don't, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to, to think that uh, defeat is sure. We are on the winning side. God has given us victory. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And Satan is just one of God's tools that he's using to make us the Christians that he wants us to be. Let's all stand together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.